Welcome to Ye Gods. I'm Scott Carter. I start each episode with the same question. If life is a mystery, who done it? No one knows what happens when we die. Neither the devouted believer nor the fervent atheist. Each week, my guests and I compare notes on how our de facto individual investigations, that is, our lives up to that moment, have led us to a work in hypotheses about how best to use our Earth time and what may or may not come next for us and for all of us. Some of you have heard me describe my near-death asthma attack in 1987 and subsequent epiphany that has set me on this path. It was the B.C. to A.D. event of my life. And I'll talk about that a little bit more later, but first... I'm going to present excerpts from past interviews in which guests have described experiences of forces connecting them to unexplainable energy. The work of God? Some say yes, some say maybe. But each has an unshakable sense of connecting to a powerful something. You'll hear from writer-producer Larry Wilmore. I was sitting, listening to them, and the vision just came in my head. I can't explain it. It made me feel like I was in the right place and that I was meant to be doing something important. Emmy-winning actress Patricia Heaton. We went up for the altar call just for fun, and they laid hands on us. And I had this, like, experience, like, a, like my body started vibrating. Novelist and podcast host Jack Wilson. I'm sure someone will scoff at this and say we're misinterpreting everything, but for me, it was enough. Conservative radio host Eric Erickson. It's things like that in my life where I'm like, you can say they're coincidences, they're accidents, they're flukes, and I'm like, nah, I'm pretty sure there's a God. And journalist Anna Marie Cox. And he asked me about the time that I almost died, which I do consider to be a miracle. Like, I should have died and I didn't. I hope you enjoy this special episode of Ye Gods. I'm a big fan of novelist Jack Wilson's podcast, The History of Literature. Jack does not consider himself religious, but after the passing of his grandfather, he experienced some unexplainable signs that the dead might still communicate with we the living. So if I were looking at one piece of evidence to address someone who said, you know, this is... We are just animals living on a rock, and that's how it is, and everything is. There's a rational explanation for everything. There are no mysteries. There's nothing in the spiritual realm that you're talking about, if they were telling me that. I have one thing that happened to me that I hold on to to remind me that there may be something there that I don't understand, but that is consistent with how I sort of have vaguely believed that the cosmos is ordered. And that is has to do with my grandfather, who was very important to me, and who I was with when he was in the hospice, when he was near death. And we had several days to be with him, and I would go in and hold his hand and look into his eyes, and he couldn't really he had sort of returned to childhood in his mind. He would sometimes say things about his mother who had passed away decades before, or he would talk about his brothers. And it wasn't clear that he could recognize us or, or you know, where he was in his mind. But his eyes were so penetrating and were struggling 
you could see the fight that was in his eyes. And this was a guy who had always been very feisty, very competitive, very full of energy. He was a, a teacher and a basketball coach, and he just was always, always fighting. He was, all, he was small, a small person, and he was always taking on people who were bigger. And he was always, he just loved to be alive more than anyone I've ever met. And so to see him kind of just fighting to hang on, and he would fight to recognize who was looking at him, and he would just stare into your eyes, and he would grip your hand, and he couldn't process things, but you could tell that he, he wanted to be there. He wanted to be there with you. Then he passed away. And we all had the funeral and the family. It's not a large family, but it was a, a big event for this town that he had lived in. And we spent several days with people parading through and we had, you know, all the events of a funeral and everything. We came back to the house and now it was just the small core. So, you know, all my childhood, we had Christmases and Easter's and everything in this living room with a small group of close family. So there were always eight of us and now there were seven. And we walked into the living room. This was the first time that the, the core group was together after this, all of these festivities of the funeral for the last several days. And it was just the family again. We walked into the living room and he had on the mantle a trophy of a hole in one. He was a big golfer. And he had a trophy on the mantle of a little plastic one with a golf ball stuck in the middle of it. And it was because he had hit a hole in one at his club. And it was something he was very proud of because his wife, my grandmother, had happened to hit a hole in one before he did. So for years, hers was on the mantle and his wasn't, or he didn't have one. And so people would tease him about it or, you know, it, it was kind of a, it was a big deal when he got it. And we walked into that living room where it was just the core of us. And as soon as we were alone, the ball popped out of the hole-in-one trophy and it fell onto the floor and it rolled to the chair where he had always sat, his recliner, sort of in the middle of the room. And we just looked at each other and my grandmother, who's very practical-minded, said, oh, they're must be a gust of wind, and we're indoors. And my father said, has that ever happened before? And she said, no, I, no, I guess not. In 15 years, they had had it there. It had never happened before. So then we were sitting there, to, you know, we put it back, and we were sitting there talking, and we had been very sad for the past few days, but we started telling stories about the people who had come through and, and you know, the catching up that had been done and everything. And someone told, told some story and the group of us laughed. <laughs> and while we were laughing, the doorbell rang. And my father was standing right by the door. So he opened it up and there was nobody there. And he went out onto the porch and he looked up and down the street. Nobody. Nobody there, nobody who could have pressed the doorbell. And my grandmother said, oh, it must be a malfunction or of electrical surge. And my father said, has that ever happened before? 
And she said, no, no, I guess not. You know, since they had been living there 50 years, the doorbell had never just rung. And so it made me think that this guy who loved life so much, loved being on planet Earth as much as he did, and loved the people around him as much as he did, was transitioning to whatever came next, but he was hanging on a little bit, that he wanted us to know that he was still with us, that he was okay, and that he wished he could be part of our group and participate in the the laughter and the joy and all of the things that he had loved about life. And it's, you know, I'm sure there's someone will scoff at this and say there was probably it was coincidence and that we, you know, were misinterpreting everything. But for me, it was enough. That's enough to to feel like for this guy and maybe for all of us, there's this possibility. Patricia Heaton was raised Catholic in Cleveland, but the idea of Christ's supernatural power wasn't personal for her until one day, teenage Patty went to a meeting of, her term, Jesus Freaks. I had a mini-rebellion early on in the 70s when the Jesus Revolution kind of sprung out. In, and I don't know if, that, if you remember that, if, you, if that touched you at all. But a bunch of Jesus freaks moved into our little hometown and rented a house. And they were kind of working in the neighborhood. They were trying to kind of, you know, be a part of the community so that they could spread the gospel, right? And I remember them in the shopping mall. There was a group of them yelling at women for not wearing skirts and for wearing pants. That was a more aggressive type. I went to what I thought was like a dance a student dance at the Episcopal Church with my friend. And we got there. It turned out to be a Jesus freak meeting. And we were kind of giggling and laughing because we'd never seen anybody waving their hands around and saying praise the Lord and speaking in tongues. And then we went up for the altar call just for fun. And they laid hands on us. And I had this like experience, like a like my body started vibrating. And I went wow. home and I... And I told my very Catholic mother that received the Eucharist every day that she needs to meet Jesus. Oh. <laughs> so my, my rebellion was telling my mother that she wasn't Christian enough. Aside from this rebellious vibration, Patty says God informs her emotions, thoughts, and choices. Up late one night with her infant son, her immense gratitude for her blessings suddenly triggered another powerful vibration in this previously unheard soundbite. From her second He God's appearance, Patty will tell you about it. Because being in the presence of God, I think, is the truth about who we are is going to be exposed at, at the judgment, right? It's going to be, it's not really judgment, it's just all, this, all the truth of who we are is going to be shown. And I had this experience, and I don't have woo-woo experiences, Scott. I don't have any woo-woo experiences. With my first son, he was slightly colicky in the first three months, and so I was always exhausted and up because he would cry at the 3, 3 a.m. feeding. He would cry for a solid 45 minutes to an hour afterwards, like clockwork. And I was in a, a, like a gliding rocker, and I was trying to rock him to sleep. And it was an unusual 
thunder and lightning storm in LA, which doesn't happen very often. And it was loud. It was booming thunder and really cracking lightning. And I had this little Sammy. He's finally fallen asleep. I'm in the glider and I'm looking at this tiny, vulnerable, precious little guy. And I'm thinking this same precious, vulnerable little guy was created by the by the being that has created this incredibly loud, scary thunderstorm that's rocking the skies. And I thought, you know, that the same being created both the vulnerability and this storm. And I thought that whoever that being is, even if he throws me into hell, he deserves my worship. Regardless of what he does with me, I, I have to worship that being. It's an incredible being. And I just started in my mind, not even out loud, just thanking God and praising him for who he is. And Scott, I had this like whoosh. I, I don't want to say out of body, but there was something that exp- was like an expansion of my soul that sh- I, it was like, I, it's like my soul filled the room. And I was like, what's the thing here? And I'm just still thanking God. And, then, and I, I shut it down. I stopped the praise and it went back into me. And I was like, what was that? And I thought, all right, all right let's, let's try it one more time. And I started thanking him again. It happened again. <clears throat> and I tried to stay in it for as long as I could. I could barely handle it. And I stopped. It was too much. And at that moment, I thought to myself, we are not capable in our present condition to be in the presence of God. We can't handle it. He's too much. This life is about burning away all the crap that makes it hard for us to be in his presence so that we're somewhat closer to him when we die. My friend Larry Wilmore, a self-described Cathnostic, a term he should trademark, cannot say for sure what led to this moment of spiritual connection, a mundane door-to-door sales orientation suddenly became a window for Larry into the possibilities of his life's purpose. One summer, I sold books door-to-door, and that really saved my life in so many ways. One was, I don't want to say vision, but I had this moment when they were giving us instruction about selling and everything where I just kind of had this image. And I always would have deja vu and that kind of thing, but this was stronger. I saw myself with a book and the book was open and there was a light coming out and I was in front of some people and I started crying. I was like, oh my God, what is that? And it just was really moved. I didn't know if it was a vision that I was having or whatever. And I just, it made me feel like I was in the right place and that I was meant to be doing something important. This is a dream that you're having or how did this, how did this come to you? I was sitting, listening to them, and the vision just came in my head as they were talking. And I was as just, you're going through your indoctrination to become exactly. this door-to-door salesman. Yeah, they're saying things like, "Whether you can or whether you can't, you are absolutely right." That was one I never forgot. I thought that was very powerful, <laughs> and all these inspirational things, you know. Yeah. And then I just had this vision that felt more religious, and it really, really hit me in my solar plexus, and I started crying, and I didn't 
transferred into like a baby Christian type of thing. I transferred it into a motivational Larry type of thing. I, it gave, if I can't explain it, but it just made me not worry and made me feel like I had to do something. Larry's feeling of connection resonates with me. After my epiphany, I had many people tell me about experiences that made them feel close to some spiritual power. For conservative talk show host Eric Erickson, his spiritual experiences led to an absolute certainty that God is watching over him. I remember when I was in college, I was struggling. I couldn't have a job at the time, um, my freshman year at school. My parents didn't understand the cost of living in, in addition to driving 10 hours. And so I didn't have a lot of money. And this one particular Sunday, I remember I was went to church before I drove home and it was a, the tithing Sunday. And the preacher was talking about, it's not the prosperity gospel, but if you just by faith believe God's going to take care of you. I had 20 bucks in my pocket and my dad's gas card. So I threw my 20 bucks in the offering plate and thought I maybe God will do something. I, I literally had to drive home and pace it. My dad had a Conoco gas card. There are very few Conoco stations in the country today. There weren't a lot back then, but I could time them out to get gas and get snacks. And then I got home and my dad handed me a hundred bucks and said, don't tell your mom. And my mom handed me a hundred bucks and said, don't tell your dad. I was like, yep, this God thing is working. Eric's certainty that God was working continued even as he and his family endured a crisis. My wife was, she was given six months to live the week before Christmas. And I lost my job on the same day. And I had a one-year-old, did not know how I was going to make ends meet, let alone what I was going to do with a one-year-old with my wife. And I had to be the one to tell her. There's a horrible rainstorm. It's one of those scenes out of a movie. They call you down a little windowless hallway and put you in a little bitty room with a plastic plant, a Bible, and tell you your, your wife's got six months to live. And then there was a terrible wreck and a rainstorm. And all the doctors were on call to go to the ER to help. And they said, well, you, you can wait for us or you can be the one to talk to your wife. And I went and did it. It was one of those things where I went, I waited for my wife to wake up from the anesthesia. Said, there's just, I don't even really remember at, a at the time what I said, but there's no easy way to say this. And they think you've got cancer and it's spread to your lungs and you've got six months to live. And she absolutely didn't believe me. And before I could do anything else, I was like, oh my God, it's 30 minutes to six. I got to go get the kid from daycare before it closes. And rushed to the daycare, grab my one-year-old, get her home. I, I lose all my strength. It's pouring down rain and just sit in the mud by my car and start crying. And finally had family come and take over. So I go back to the hospital. And the doctor finally came in for lots and lots and lots of praying. Boy, that was when I, like, Bible says, pray without ceasing. I was praying without ceasing. And the doctor came in and said that she was had been misdiagnosed. They really didn't know what it was. They were sending it to the Mayo Clinic. But, you know, ironically, Scott, had they not done that, 10 years later, she was diagnosed with a rare genetic form of lung cancer. And had she not been misdiagnosed in 2006, they never would have found it until it was too late. And now she takes an oral chemo pill. It keeps the tumors from growing. The pill's supposed to work for two years. She's five years in. It still works. And it's things like that in my life where I'm like, you can say there are coincidences, there are accidents, there are flukes. And I'm like, nah, I'm pretty sure there's a God. Patty and Eric completely embraced their experiences as solid proof of God's existence. But many live in a space between doubt and belief. 
Sometimes a connection to a higher power isn't felt in a single miracle, but in a slow realization. That was the case for journalist Anna Marie Cox, who, over time, accepted the idea of her Savior's resurrection. I did have a real stumbling block with the whole uh, resurrection piece of it. That seemed like a lot. And I don't know if I can really call myself a Christian if I don't like believe the Jesus story. I believe in the idea of grace, but do I believe the Jesus story? And there is a historical Jesus. I know that. I was talking to a friend I made in the program who actually had a Harvard Divinity degree, but had done enough in her drinking career that she was working at a Starbucks in St. Paul. She's now a hospital chaplain. She's great. She has twin girls, but she was newly sober, having lost everything when I talked to her. And I told her, I was like, the resurrection, kind of a deal breaker for me. And she said something which I've talked to her since, and she said she doesn't even remember saying this. <laughs> but she said, you know, Anna, the important part of the of the resurrection story isn't that he lived again, it's that he died for us. It is actually the thing you think it is. The resurrection is a glorious thing and it's a celebration, but it's the gift is not the resurrection. The gift to humanity is the willing sacrifice. And for some reason, like that just, that was half of the click. And then the other half of the click was, but I still have trouble with all these miracles. It's not just that I didn't believe in the resurrection. It's just, do I believe God is active in my world? That Do I believe in a personal relationship with a, a God that recognizes me, who I am, and that can work in my world? I was talking to a friend who's actually, who's, I think we probably still identify as an evangelical Christian, but he's left a lot of the hardcore stuff behind. And he asked me about the time that I almost died which I do consider to be a miracle. Like, I should have died, and I didn't. And he said, and he knew the problem I was having was kind of around the resurrection, and he was like, he said this, and again, he says he doesn't remember saying it. He says, why would you limit the size of the miracle you're willing to accept? And he also reminded me, it's not like you have to go around and just, and you You can just, if you're willing to believe that God can be active in the world, if you're willing to believe it, it's, there's a, there's a space there for me. It's the willingness to believe it rather than sometimes I don't know if I actually believe, 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 believe. I have a personal relationship with a God because that seems really so unlikely. There's so many people in the world. How can God have a personal relationship with each one of them? The universe is so big. How can God work in our world? But then I have that thought again, like, why would I limit the size of the miracle I'm willing to accept? Am I willing to accept the idea of a personal relationship? Whether or not I have proof that it exists, whether or not it's quote unquote true. And I decided that I was. And it's funny because I knew now believe that Jesus died for my sins. That thing that those evangelical youth leaders wanted me to say, I am perfectly happy to say these days. That's one of my favorite quotes from this show. Why limit the size of the miracle you are willing to accept? And now, finally, in place of my usual sermonette in my homily opinion, I I want to read excerpts from my autobiographical monologues, Heavy Breathing and Suspension Bridge, which I performed a 
across the U.S., in Scotland, in Ireland, and which led to this podcast. This excerpt deals with my being asthmatic since I was two, and in 1987, I was making my living as a stand-up comic when I suffered the worst attack of my life and spent the next week at New York City's Bellevue Hospital. After six days, I was released from Bellevue on a steamy, hazy summer afternoon. I took a deep breath and felt as though my lungs were rafts, being inflated after having been stored all winter. I cried at the good pain of air pockets popping as they filled up with life-giving oxygen, and then, boom, after six days of blank hospital walls and white uniforms, my senses were ambushed by a tidal wave of stimuli from this existential banquet of New York, New York, a hell of a town. It was as though vinyl covers had been lifted from the entire world. Cars, buildings, and clothes seemed rarefied like when you watch an old documentary. I was keenly aware of the gift of life and the possibility of action. I felt waves of appreciation for that sweet gift. I could express emotion unafraid of rejection. I could work without fear of failure. I'd accepted death. And I knew life, and at that moment, no one on earth was richer than I was. All the pain I'd ever suffered at that moment was worth it to get me to the very second that I was experiencing. I felt like Scrooge on Christmas morning, buying that turkey for the Cratchits, or Jimmy Stewart at the end of It's a Wonderful Life running down Main Street shouting, Merry Christmas, movie house, Merry Christmas, post office. And out of that scare came a rush of blessings and wonders which I feared, if not quickly harnessed, would be as irretrievable as an unrecorded dream. I'd stumbled on a mine, not of gold, but of grace, and I needed to stake my claim. I had experienced a suspension of disbelief. I didn't doubt God's existence, only my ability to receive a lasting grace. My brush with death told me I had to place some sort of bet on how I thought my soul, if I had one, would land when I died. It was as though I knew that I needed insurance, but what policy? Which carrier? I sought a suspension bridge to support a leap of faith. So I vowed to consider any religious notion presented to me, including the guy with the Mr. Microphone in Times Square, who, for all I knew, was the only officially sanctioned earthly soul solicitor. However, I would accept only that which resonated in my heart. After all, there's no point in faking faith. Any God whom you can fool wouldn't have the juice to save you anyway. Well, that's our show. If you've had a supernatural experience, for example, if a repair person was scheduled to show up at your home between the hours of 9 and 11, and they did, you can email us at yegodspodcast at gmail.com or visit us on social media at yegodspodcast. If you like this show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you didn't, please, my, my, my request is that you try one more episode, any episode. And if that doesn't resonate for you either, then this podcast isn't your cup of communion wine. I want to thank the Ye Gods and Goddesses Dossie McCraw, Robin Rose Valentine, Selena Lauterer, and her team at Artemis Independent. I'm Scott Carter, and until next time, be of good cheer.